As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I thought we would give you a window into Scott Minard's past, and the first thing I said is, get me Bob Diamond. Bob, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Take us back before Barclays to Credit Suisse, and you had this young Turk making bond decisions. Why was Scott Minard special in the trenches of fixed income, the tumult of Europe in the late 80s, early 90s? Uh First of all, I, I just already miss him terribly. He had the kindest uh, soul um, of anyone I've ever worked with um, for every person he worked with. And Tom, it actually went before that to Morgan Stanley. Scott and I were in Morgan Stanley, New York. Uh, I moved to London in in, uh, in 88 to run international fixed income trading, the trading outside the U.S. Scott was good enough to leave his unit and come and join my unit, which was pretty new at the time. And when I think back at the at the incredible transaction we did during that period, not many people recall this, but we did the first European currency unit bond ever issued in 1992 when Scott and I were at Morgan Stanley. Um, ironically, the issuer was the Bank of England, and it was certainly a precursor to all that came following that with the single currency and the introduction of the euro in 1998. But that was just to me, just another example of how Scott was always at the very, very forefront of everything going on in the fixed income markets. Scarlett Fu and our Fed coverage have always seen how he's supple, how he could change his mind. As I yeah. say, he had a train of thought like a CPA, not like some fancy CFA uh, macro baloney. But the answer is Scott Minard for you and others, including Guggenheim, had to manage risk. What was the key risk attribute that he had daily on the desk at Morgan Stanley and at Credit Suisse? Um, I, I think of a time at Credit Suisse. First of all, this, this, is a, this is a man who loved studying the markets, studying the Fed, always had a grasp on the macro environment, the medium term, the long term, and all of his shorter term actions were based on those. What a lot of people forget is the actions he took in, uh, in 1994. Scott was working for me as head of credit trading at CSFB in New York. You'll recall... That was the last time we had this kind of real strong rate increase. And at that time, the victim was Orange County. Um, and I remember Scott coming into my office. We sat down with a group of traders. He was the first to recognize the problems in Orange County. 
by that afternoon, we had exited every position. Um, these were repo positions. All the money was returned to Orange County and it triggered the liquidation of those repo positions across all the other dealers. And to me, it was the vision Scott had then and it has always had um, his grasp of the macro and his grasp of what was right for the regulators as well as what was right for us at, at CSFB. And one of the things that goes unrecognized is the incredible execution. We're out of those positions by the afternoon of the first recognition of what was going on with the, at the time, the Orange County debacle. Bob, uh, tremendous, tremendous professional. The nimbleness uh, that it takes to be able to do that, the conviction, but also what we've been talking about all year, humility to change your mind, to move on a dime. How did he embody that in a way that really speaks volumes to you about what it takes to be successful in a very changing place, which is Wall Street? Um, you know, I think right to your point, Lisa, interestingly, is his move from Morgan Stanley and CSFB where he was trading and every night was marked to market. And most days you were turning over your inventory. His evolution into the investment management side, I think, was a critical factor for Scott. If he could be better at something than he was at taking risk in the fixed income markets, he was even better as an investor. And I think that was because he spent so much time truly studying what was going on with the Fed and the other central banks. And he had such a firm grip on policy so that all of his micro decisions were based around um, a conviction um, of what was happening in the macro environment. But he never sat on it, Lisa, just to your point. He studied it consistently day in and day out. And um, I, I don't know anyone in either the trading environment or the investment management environment that that spent as much time doing research, you know, throughout his career, even in the very, very senior position he was in more recently at Guggenheim. As we enter a new territory, a new era, as some people are calling it, where perhaps central banks are not going to be the tailwind that they were for so long. Is your view that Wall Street and trading desks more generally have that spirit more broadly? Or do you think that perhaps there is a, a lack of that experience on some of the trading floors after all of the churn that we've seen in the past decades? Well, listen, there's no question that the experience of uh, people that grew up on trading desks in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s is very different than the most recent period. Since um, the financial crisis in, in 2008, it's kind of been a one-way one um, bet. Uh, I hate to use the word bet, but kind of directionally. Zero interest rates, um, doing everything that was, was required. That All those efforts kind of redoubled or maybe troubled um, during COVID. Um, and it's clearly a different environment right now. So I think the, mm -hmm. um, the skills of people that are getting marked to market every day, turning their inventory every day, far more typical of the trading floors of the, of the, of the big banks and the hedge funds, our skills are right. going to be paramount going forward. Uh, Bob, you've lived this in Technicolor. Uh, and, you know, I think of this year, the challenges you've had at Atlas Merchant, uh, like a lot of other people in the equity space and the whole SPAC thing and crypto and all the rest of this. Are there young Scott Minards out there? Or are we moving so fast in a two and 20 bonus world, immediate gratification that we're not building the future Scott Minards because he's a brain drain out of our major banks? I think you just hit the, you, you know, you, you hit it square on the head, Tom. It's up to us as the leaders 
because there's definitely the raw talent out there. And are we providing an environment um, where people can learn um, as Scott learned um, through trading in the US, through trading in Europe, through both trading and being on the investment side of being a real student of the markets and doing the homework day in and day out, the research day in and day out, keeping the relationships with the Fed, keeping the relationships with the regulators and the clients. Um, yes, the talent's out there. It's up to us as leaders to develop Talent. Bob Diamond, thank you so much. Of Atlas Merchant Capital, of Barclays, of Credit Suisse, and Morgan Stanley from a bit ago. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Today, the only one working at Bank of America is Michael Gapin, their head of U.S. economics, and we're thrilled to bring him in uh, this morning. Uh, Michael Gapin, I've seen adjustments to Q3 GDP. We've just seen important Q4 data. Is Q4 growth a mystery to you, or do you have a confidence in where you stand? It seems like, well, first of all, good morning. Uh, Happy holidays to everyone. It seems like growth will come in certainly less than what we had in the third quarter. You know, estimates are around one to one and a half percent, maybe a little closer to two, but it does seem like we're moderating into year end. Uh, So I'd I'd say somewhere in that range is likely where we're going to end up. Uh, But it does, as I think um, Mike mentioned, some of the momentum in personal spending and business spending seems to be slowing as we get into year end. So I do think the fourth quarter will be running around half of where we were in the third quarter. That's slowed down, and we're seeing it in the bond market now, the two-year distancing out over where it was before, 4.31%, a solid four basis point higher yield in the two-year equities, uh, fractionally on an odd day taken on the chin. Uh, is Well, how far apart are the markets in economics now, uh, Michael Gapin? Not too far. I mean, I, I still think it's an open question of, you know, will we have a recession? When when will it be? How deep and long lasting might it be? So there will be some disconnect here between, say, where equity markets are and bond markets are. And it'll be hard for equity markets to price in a downturn and kind of know where to revise earnings until we start to see some of that slippage in, in the underlying data. So certainly the if you look at the bond market, it is expecting, I would say it is pricing in some mild recession in 2023 and a Fed that's forced to cut in the second half of the year. There's a little dislocation between that and, and equity markets, but you know, time will tell in, in, in this regard. So I'd say, yeah, there is a gap. 
Um, and that, that gap's going to narrow at some point, and, and the data is going to tell us when. I was speaking with Peter Shear uh, of Academy Securities yesterday, and he called for outright deflation next year. He said that prices are going to fall uh, and that inflation is going to fade away. How do you push back against that? Well, I think I think you push back and say 272,000 jobs a month, wage growth and you know in the four to four and a half percent range kind of expected at least through the first half of the year. Uh, it's going to be really tough to get deflation unless unless what I'd call it's a bit of a mirage that some of these good prices like used cars, new cars, household furnishings that those just retrace their entire pandemic rise in in 12 months. So that'll bring headline inflation down a lot. But underneath, I would still expect services inflation to be firm. So persistent deflation, really hard to see at this point. So I'd say it's probably a composition story unless you think the economy is about to fall off a cliff and the unemployment rate's going to, I don't know, the Larry Summers six to seven to 8% range. Otherwise, I think it's probably more just a, a goods retracement story bringing overall inflation down, but I don't think that's where we would settle in. I've noticed a real shift in tone from a lot of the people we've been speaking with. There's new optimism about a soft landing that was not there about a month ago. Do you think that it's misplaced or do you think that there's real evidence of that becoming a greater chance of a reality based on some of the disinflationary uh, action that we've seen with goods, even though it perhaps hasn't trickled into services as much? I would say it hasn't. The data flow in the mix and, and kind of the rolling over goods prices, um, we've all been expecting that. It's 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 been about kind of timing and when it would show up. Hasn't really changed my view on the likelihood of a recession in, in 2023, because as I think you're getting to, it's, it's really about the labor market, wage inflation and, and services. And the Fed's not going to feel comfortable that inflation will be going back to 2% right. unless it removes imbalances from, from the labor market. I don't think that yeah. picture has changed. Hey, Dr. Gabe, but I'm not a fan of the Michigan data. It's coming out at 9 o'clock, but you know, I'm learning to follow it more and more. And the one thing I get of value there is this odd step snapshot of the public of the inflation guesstimate five to 10 years out, which is called mm -hmm. inflation expectations. It's sort of up at a 1997 level, three-ish. Are we becoming unanchored in our heart and soul out of Olivier Blanchard's wonderful new research? Are we actually becoming unanchored and towards a higher expected inflation? I don't think so. I think if we look across the University of Michigan data and the and the other data on expectations and market implied measures, I still think we're broadly consistent with low and stable some Something around around two percent, and and I do think with today's PCE data, the last couple CPI reports, I think it'll be kind of built in that okay, inflation is coming down. So step right. step number one, right, get inflation on a downward trend. Right. Step two, let's see if we can get it around two percent. Right. So I, I I do think it'll it'll become more noticeable that the rate of inflation is slowing. I don't think long run inflation expectations are are inconsistent with what the Fed's trying to achieve. Michael Gapin, thank you so much. Well, hunkered in his uh, office right now, trying not to go out, is Jim Bianco, who we're so pleased, is willing to join us, president of Bianco Research, who's had some stunning calls over this year, has really been a breath of fresh air in his real reassessment of free money and the lack of it. Jim, 
Really, I want to start on one of the big questions ending this year, which is the discrepancy between bond markets and their expectations of what the Fed is going to do and what the Fed is saying they are going to do, which is raise rates a lot more than the market is certain, certainly allowing for. Can you end the year helping us to understand who is right? Well, historically, usually the market has been right. But in 2022, it's been the Fed. The market has been dragged, screaming and kicking to the belief that rates are going to go up. And while both the market and the Fed are saying, you know, the terminal rate where they're going to peak is around 5%, the market thinks they're going to start cutting rates this year, where the Fed has made it pretty much clear that they're not going to be cutting rates this year. And that discrepancy is going to pretty much, I think, drive, you know, investing in the first half of 23. Are we going to get the pivot in 2023 or are we going to get the pivot in 2024? If the market doesn't get the pivot, which it is expecting, I think it's there's going to be some room for disappointment. I guess that there's another way of asking this, which is, have we really gotten out of the woods with respect to some sort of more substantial financial disruption? Or have we seen the bulk of it in terms of the rate move and the realization that we are, we are in a new higher rate era? I think we've seen the bulk of the move. Yes, there's still more rate hikes to come. There could be as much as 75 more, 75 basis points more between now and say the spring. But yeah, I also think that whether or not we are in an era of higher rates, that's really the question. The market is still of some belief that in the next two years or so, inflation will settle back down to 2% and interest rates can go back down, you know, somewhere around 2% as well. And it can approximate something that we saw pre-pandemic, where I'm more of the camp that we're in a higher rate environment now that Really, when the Fed starts cutting, you'll get to three and a half, and that'll be pretty much it. Uh, that's what, what easing will be, or maybe three, which what easing will be in the future. And then in the next yeah. flare-up, rates will go higher from there. You know, Jim Bianco, you've seen big shifts. Like, let's look at the Chicago Cubs, Landon Dansby, Cody Bellinger coming in. I mean, big shifts uh, for the Cubs going into next year. The big shift in our world, as Lisa alluded to, is money now costs something. We have a risk-free rate. We have a legitimate sharp ratio. Explain to the Ute how things change. Well, I think the big thing with that is that in 2022, we saw that the total return in bonds, you know, how much money you lost plus the income you got. Remember, you started the year with no income. You started the year with pretty much a zero interest rate. has been a record. They, we've not seen uh, Bank of America saying it's been 104 years since we've seen these kind of losses in the bond market. And you're right. I, I mean, uh, I'm a little bit surprised, too, that if you, if you told me in January uh, the worst market in 104 years, I would have thought that we would have had a lot more financial disruption than we've had so far. Maybe that's a sign that, you know, rates are not as deleterious as we think and they can go even higher. But uh, nevertheless, I think as we move into 23, we're going to start the year with a coupon. We're going to start the year with an interest rate. So if prices go down, you've got a cushion now. You've got an interest rate that we haven't seen in 15 years. But does it mean, you know, you go back to 1918 and everything that happened there earlier in the year, folks, we did the collapse of Russia off the war in Ukraine and what it did to J.P. Morgan. It was really uh, something. Let's drag it forward, Jim, to 1974, and we were greeted in 75 with up, up, up. Can stocks stun this year and do a 75 or a 1982? 
Sure. And they need one thing to do that. They need signs that inflation is, after all, transitory. It is on its way back to 2% without a recession, that that's its natural long run rate, and it's going to stay there. If you see something like that, the Fed can settle down, the market can take off then at that point. But if inflation is not on its way to 2%, the market will struggle. I've argued that inflation in the post-pandemic era, inflation is this story, is the game, and it will continue to be. And whether or not it goes back to 2% on its own naturally in 2023, 2024. If inflation's the story, as everyone is saying that it is, how important is today's read, the last inflation read that we get of 2022, as we get a sense of where the consumer is ending the year? I think, it. you know, we're going to get PCE, and the Fed is focused on core PCE, And they've made, uh, Chairman Powell's made the case that neutral is getting the interest rates, all interest rates, sustainably above uh, core PCE's rate, which should be around 4.5 or 4.6 when we get the number. Well, now all of a sudden that puts that interest rate uh, or interest rates within that possibility of getting above the inflation rate, something they haven't been this whole cycle. So if we see that 4.5, 4.6, and we see it trending lower, we could be getting a lot closer to at least neutral, according to the Fed. Jim Bianco, thank you so much. From Chicago, thank stay you. warm. Mr. Bianco, Bianco at Research, providing weather forecasts for Bloomberg Surveillance. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is a joy right now. I usually, when I'm giving speeches, I'll say something like, you know, the two great things in America, antibiotics, air conditioning. And the other great thing is what Brian Kelly invented. He is the points guy. And whatever you say, he's a pinata for the industry. Brian Kelly changed how we travel. No way to put it. Brian, I did a Brian Kelly the other day. I took a family member, business class, the Philippines, $21,000. I did the Brian Kelly pixie dust and I paid $56 for that trip with a lot of miles. Are those kind of things going to happen next year? Are we still going to get the mileage pop next year? Absolutely. The airlines depend on the mileage programs. You know, they sold billions of dollars worth of miles, you know, to kind of survive over the pandemic. So the loyalty programs are alive and well. But as you kind of hinted at, they're increasing the amount of miles that you need for each trip. So what I recommend to people, instead of holding your miles long term, use them now. And uh, airlines like United now let you cancel your mileage reservations for free. So what I say 
or during storms like this, use your frequent flyer miles as a backup option. If your flight is canceled on one airline, use your miles to fly out on another. Brian, what's so important to me is the idea interview to interview with airline types, which is they're optimistic, but I don't see a lot of thrill about investing in the business. They've come off the pandemic lows in that. Are you optimistic on American aviation out of this horrific pandemic? I am because, you know, when you look at the generations, millennials, Gen Z, people want to travel. You know, wealth and luxury are these days defined by having great experiences. And luxury travel is seeing a huge increase from pre-pandemic. I don't see that, you know, showing any signs of slowing down. So I think long term, the travel industry will be okay. But, you know, every industry right now, there's just so many question marks with what's going to happen in 23, unemployment, et cetera. But I'm bullish on travel. Maybe bullish on travel for the companies that arrange it, not necessarily the experience of travel for the consumer. We were speaking with Elaine Becker over at Cowan, and she basically was saying people are going to pay more to get less. How much are you seeing that reflected in what's available, the perks, whether it's access to, to clubs, to lounges, whether it's how many points you can use, as you're alluding to, for each flight? Well, you bring up a good point with the airline lounges. So starting in March, Amex Platinum uh, members will no longer be able to bring in guests for free into those Centurion lounges. There's so many uh, lines to get into the lounges. Uh, Airports are packed. So, uh, you know, the experience is being downgraded. You know, I was just looking at a hotel in Palm Beach uh, in January, $3,000 a night for a normal room. It's kind of crazy how much inflation has happened in travel. Um, but consumers don't show signs of uh, pulling back because of these increase in prices. So we'll see. I, I do think there will be a tipping point where people say, this is just crazy. I'm not going to spend this much money uh, for the experience that I get. We haven't gotten there yet, though. And that's the reason why you continue to see this inflation. You mentioned hotels. What about on the hotel front? How much can you really use these point systems versus the pushback that you're seeing on the margins, certain places in the airline industry? Mm. Yeah, hotels are, I think, particularly egregious. Uh, You know, there are still luxury hotels where due to safety, they're not going to do housekeeping, right? I I think that's egregious when you're spending $1,000 a night and have to bank to have your room. Um, But overall, you know, the hotel industry actually, I think, is a lot more healthy than the airline industry. The margins there are much better. But loyal, I I highly recommend to people, use your perks on your, those hotel-branded credit cards, Uh, you get free nights, you know, you can pay $95 a year and get a free night at a $500 hotel. So there are a lot of ways to play the loyalty system. Brian Kelly, I I took Kelly 302, Points Guy 302. I got a B minus folks. I really didn't do that well on it. And Brian, there was a ratio of economy to premium economy to business class. And I've never seen it as stupid as it is now. I've looked at two recent flights where business business was 10 times more expensive than economy. Where are we in two years in the mix on airplanes? Yeah, well, you know, during the pandemic, things slowed down a little bit. Business was only moderately more expensive because, you know, the companies, the banks weren't paying for those crazy high, you know, full fare business class prices. You know, the trend is now airlines are putting in premium economy. That's the sweet spot. That's where they're making money. They charge a premium, but not the 5X or 10X that you see for business class. Um, But airline pricing has always been frankly, insane. Uh, And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Tell me about the other side of the Brian Kelly equation, which is the charge cards. Are the banks enthused by the Brian Kelly world? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the banks are making buku bucks on the rewards cards. They want premium consumers, especially going into 2023, you know, thoughts of a recession, people getting laid off and not paying their credit card balances. We're seeing credit card balances for Americans in general go up uh, dramatically over the pandemic. We saw a lot of people pay off their credit. Now Americans are accruing more credit. So the banks want those premium consumers who are going to pay off in full every month. Yeah. And uh, so those people like the travel cards. And so I see a lot of uh, investment in those premium travel credit cards in 2023. Just real quick here, Brian, do you think it's a fool's errand to try to travel for the December break? I'm just asking for a friend. Well, I, I know you're, you're traveling today, I think, especially out of New York, a third of flights out of LaGuardia are canceled today. So if you're going to travel, pack your patience. And I really do want to urge everyone, be nice to frontline employees at the airport. Yes, yes. You know, they are underpaid, overworked. And trust me, they want your flight to go out. Don't scream at them. They don't want you in front of them at the gate, yeah. you know. So just be nice this holiday season. And, right. you know. Brian, you know, it's a personal note. I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm just going to say it. You saved me about three months ago with Brian Kelly 101. I, I, I couldn't believe what I did on some of these international junkets my family's uh, taken. I can't say enough about it, folks. Use your charge cards carefully and wisely and try to figure out the points. An annual visit with Mr. Kelly, the points guy. Thank you so much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.